um, just a save the date. Um, for those of you that are um, volunteering, that could be in this service, that could be in children's service, or in the house of prayer, but you, if you're on the monthly volunteer schedule, um, December 11th, you want to mark that Friday night. We do an appreciation Christmas party for um, our volunteer staff every year. Um, so the 11th, you will be getting an email with location, time, all the details of that gathering. But just make sure you put aside that night because we're like about a month out, which is crazy, crazy. So save the date. Make sure you don't book anything for that night. Um, <clears throat> you'll have to forgive me if I clear my throat and if I'm, I sound disgusting. <laughs> I um, I was away this week and had to do about 12 hours of teaching over the course of three days, um, which normally would be fine. But the day I landed, I ended up with like a terrible chest cold. Um, and if I were home, I normally do all kinds of homeopathic things that heal me really quickly. And I had like nothing available to me. <laughs> so it just kind of settled. And then I got in like at 1 a.m. on Friday night and started all of my regime. So I'm not contagious. I'm not sick. It's just more like the tail end of it. So... You'll have to, <laughs> Noah's coughing like I passed it. <laughs> but no, I'm on the tail end, but I just sound disgusting. So we're actually, this is week two. Um, if you weren't here last week, my amazing husband started our series on, um, I had to see what it was. <laughs> I know the theme of it. I know we're <laughs> talking about, uh, but it's Taking Back Sunday is our, is actually the name of our series. And so this is week two. And then um, next week is going to be our final week of the series. And then actually after Thanksgiving, we're going to be doing a series on the book of Daniel. Um, yeah, which will be very good. You don't want to miss that. So um, so pretty much what I'm going to discuss today um, is we're going to look at um, how the Bible defines the word church. Because let's be honest, in our culture, in our society, in our generation, there's a lot of definitions of what the church looks like. We have a lot of opinions, um, and some of it's even, I think, based upon our gift mix of, like, what the church is supposed to be, and the church is supposed to look like this, and we all stand really judgy when the church doesn't look like that. Um, some of it's our gift mix, so we think it should look certain ways, and some of it's our wounding. You know, we, we want it to fulfill a need, and we want it to do something, and we stand with disappointment. Um, but how many of you guys know, I don't, I don't know about you, I was raised in the church, and a lot of the people that I was raised in the church with, um, many, many, many of them are not in a corporate church setting any longer. Um, I mean, a lot of them, wouldn't you say that's a lot of our, our, our friends, um, are not in the corporate church setting any longer. But a lot of them profess to be believers, um, believers, but they themselves, they are the church. <laughs> <laughs> which I love, I love, and every single person sitting under the sound of my voice today, you've gathered here in a corporate sense, so I just want to identify, you clearly, you value that. You, you value the corporate expression, that's why you're here. And as individuals, we should all embody what the church is. It's not necessarily, you know that what the amazing thing is when you really look at the church biblically, but when you look at it historically, let's be honest, Christianity has been one of the most misunderstood, one of the most persecuted. What, I mean, it's been the object of hostility and persecution and all of those things, but yet it not only continues to survive, but thrive and increase. And you know why it is? Is that the church is not an organization. It's an organism. It's a living, breathing being that is alive. And you know, we have a lot of friends that are pastors, our families, a lot of our family is in the ministry. And one of the things that you find as a common trend in churches is that, you know, a lot of individuals in the church, like if they get offended or they don't like the way or the direction that a church is going, oftentimes it's kind of like, oh, I'm not, I'm not called here anymore. I'm going to move on. And when you talk to them, they almost think that that's like the end of that church. Like God is just done because I'm all done. And the amazing thing about it is, I mean, every person is valuable, but we've watched the cycle of so many of these churches of these old people go, and guess what? New people come. <laughs> like, it's not the end of anything. And honestly, when the leadership is after God, even when there might be error and things of imperfection, when they're seeking the heart of God, guess what? Through repentance, there's restoration, 
and it, it, it's just like in your individual life is the same as our corporate life is that there's always re- redemption. All, all things are redeemable. And so as long as we're seeking the heart of God, he's able to breathe new life and he's able to resurrect things. And so one of the things that we found is several churches that, you know, people will be like, oh, it's on its deathbed. It's never going to, you know, and it's kind of they're frustrated by kind of the life or the culture of it. We've watched pastors just kind of take that as a, okay, obviously the Lord wants me to grow and learn. And they've taken a humble posture and position. And some of, we know some pastors that they've done like five church plants and they've almost killed all five. (laughs) But then like that sixth church plant, like you have to understand God is patient with that man and with his calling as well. That sixth church plant becomes like the mega church, you know, of a certain region. And that man begins fulfilling his calling as a shepherd. And so what we have to understand is that it's not about an organization. It's not about a flow chart. It's not about, you know, even we, our volunteers, that organizational side, it's about people. And it's ultimately about the heart of God. And there's something that through scripture, God is very committed to. He's committed to it. When you kind of look scripturally, at the understanding is his commitment. He says, I am coming back. He doesn't say for a community of people, for a fellowship, for an organization. He says, I'm coming back for a church without spot or wrinkle. He's committed to it. He's saying, that is my end game and my end goal is I'm coming back for a church. And so ultimately, I would like to be a part of what he's coming back for. I don't want to be a separate entity and place myself outside of that. But the very, very, very first time that the word church is mentioned in the New Testament is actually in Matthew 16. And so we're going to look at that today. If you want to turn to Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, and we're going to look at the Greek understanding of this word church and all that Jesus was meaning when he said it. So Matthew chapter 16, verse 17 says, Jesus answered and said to him, oh, I should give you guys a little context. Let's start in 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I say that that I am? Verse 14. So they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah and or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Verse 16. Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, son of the living God. So Peter has a revelation. You are the Christ. He has a revelation of Jesus. And verse 17, Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So what do we see here? Jesus is basically saying, who do you say that I am? Peter answers and he responds and he says, you are the Christ. You are son of the living God. His eyes are open. He knows it's Jesus. He has a revelation of Jesus. Then Jesus goes on in response and basically says, blessed are you. Because it's, it's not man that's revealed this, but you have, you've come to know this by my father who is in heaven. Then he goes, this, Jesus goes on to say, and I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then he goes on to say, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So what do we see here? Jesus is saying, you have a revelation of who I am. You know who I am. You see who I am. And what does he say? He says, it's upon this rock, the rock of the revelation of Jesus. I'm going to build my church. So this is the first time in the Greek that the the word church and the understanding of church. Now, what exactly does that mean? This is actually very interesting because if we want to call ourselves to be as part of the bride of Christ, the church here, this word literally means a gathering of citizens called out from their homes. Ah! Like it like literally means you can't isolate yourself. Me, my husband, my cute son, we are the church. We're just going to do church right here and kind of forget the corporate body because you're all deceived. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that's what we see a lot happening in the U.S., don't we? I am the church. Me and my family. I'm going to be honest with you. I, in that context, do I think that 
Jesus hears us, that we can pray, that we can hear the word. Are we priests before the Lord? Absolutely. We should all be in fellowship with the Spirit of God in our homes. Our homes should be mini little churches. But I'm going to be honest with you. There is something that is irreplaceable, even for our children, to be raised in a corporate context, in a corporate understanding. But the other thing, too, is just even as the word says that one can put a 1,000 to flight, Two can put 10,000 to flight. There's something of coming together and of unifying and being one accord that actually brings exponential increase and effectiveness. It's, it's the understanding we need each other. Like, I don't have it in all, in all of myself. But, you know, one of the things, too, is, you know, we bring our son here. I, I love church for many reasons. But one of the things is, is I'm obviously teaching my ch- child the word. I don't, do not want my child to be a product of culture. There's a lot of things that I'm instilling in him that are very contrary to our culture and our society. And do you know what I love when he comes here? What I'm teaching and instilling in my son is no longer kind of, well, it's just our family. We are the anomaly in all of culture, just we ourselves and I. We're just trying to, my son comes here and he sees Will Eifler. He sees Fabiano Pavesi. He sees Noah Wells. He sees men that I look at and I say, look at these guys. Look at these guys and set them as an example. Obviously, my husband. <laughs> but he get, he's getting that at home. <laughs> but you know what? What would happen? What's going to happen when my kid is 12 and 13 and 14, when he begins observing kind of the cultural landscape and all of the options and all of the possibilities and all of those things? Do you know what's happened? Is he, he's, he has a root system of seeing righteous men that love Jesus, that it's not abnormal, that it's not feminine, that it's not abstract, but he has seen it in living reality. And guess what? He looks up to these men. He's walking in their footsteps. I can say to Abram, follow Jesus, Abram, follow Jesus. But at the end of the day, as a child, he's walking in the footsteps of people that he esteems and he respects. That's how he learns to follow Jesus. And I'm setting before him examples. That's what I'm doing. I'm setting before him examples of saying, this is how you follow Jesus, just like him. See that man, how he leads his family, how he leads his wife? That is a godly man. I'm setting before him so that my child is rooted and grounded in the understanding of what it is to be a man of God. And let's be honest. So many places in culture and society, our children get so many other messages. They do. And even from a young age, whether it's even on TV or, you know, whatever it may be, there's so many other messages. And so we, as a community of believers, we have to understand the beauty and the wisdom that Christ has intended in the corporate expression of the church. Yes, you are the church, but there is a corporate expression. So the word the church means a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into a a public place. Say public place. You're in a public place today. Doesn't that feel good? Like you could have met with Jesus in your bed. You could have. You could have cracked open your Bible, had a little Devo, (laughs) done it right there. I am the church. But wasn't it, wasn't it encouraging to gather together with a body of believers and you could, you could like sing your brains out? Really, could you do that in your apartment? <laughs> really? No, you can lift up your voice and worship with abandon, but you're also in that corporate expression with other believers. It means an assembly Do you guys know what an assembly means? An assembly is a gathering together of people. It's definitely more than one. It like denotes a group. An assembly of people convened in a public space. And it actually says of the council and for the purpose of deliberating. Are we deliberating today? You know what we're doing? We're taking the word of God and we're deliberating how we then shall live. This is the word of God. And this is how we as believers are to pattern our lives. An assembly of Christians gathered for worship. This is the church. An assembly of believers, a company of Christians, or of those who, hoping for eternal salvation through Jesus Christ, observe their own religious rites, and they hold their own religious meetings. It's amazing. This goes on actually to speak of, um, it constitutes as a company that is united in body, and in purpose. 
That is beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. So what do we find here is we find this is the first mention that Jesus gives us of the church. And so he's saying the church is built upon the rock of the revelation of Jesus Christ. But I just want to ask you, let's just take observation. After he basically lays the foundation of this is what the church is, and the church is founded upon the revelation of Jesus Christ, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, the place of strength, the place of authority that the church is called to be in, I want to ask you, what does it say right after this? And it says, I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I just want to ask you, how do you bind and loose? How does that happen? (laughs) I mean, seriously, if you're going to read this passage of scripture, and you now have the understanding that the church is intended to be founded upon the revelation of Jesus Christ, The church is intended, and he even says from this place, I will give to you the keys of the kingdom. And he also says the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. But then he goes on to give this instruction of whatever you bind in heaven will be bound on earth. Whatever you loose in heaven will be loosed on earth. What exactly does that mean? How do we apply this scripture? You know, I want to give you a really clear picture of what it is for the binding and the loosing in heavenly places. I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 10. This right here, instead of me explaining binding and loosing and trying to give you kind of like an understanding, you're going to see it pictured. You're going to see a really graphic picture of binding and loosing right here. Daniel chapter 10. For those of you that don't know, Daniel was in Babylonian captivity. Daniel read the prophecies of Jeremiah. He's reading Jeremiah's prophecies, and Jeremiah prophesied that there would be about 70 years of captivity. So as Daniel's reading the prophecies of Jeremiah, he's like doing the math. He's like, hmm, our time of captivity is coming to an end. He's like realizing and understanding the hour that he lives in. He's realizing and understanding what God's doing and what God desires to do. And all of a sudden, he's realizing and understanding that he has a part to play in this. Can you imagine that? So Daniel chapter 10, we know, I, we don't have time today, but from, I, I would encourage you, we're going to go through the book of Daniel, yay. Um, I think actually Will's going to do a week on Daniel. Yep. Woohoo! Um, <laughs> Matthew Harlan, where's Matthew? There's Matthew Harlan and the McDonald's. The McDonald's are actually the ones overseeing it, um, the four weeks. But, um, so we're going to go through, so I don't feel need to give you great detail. <laughs> My husband's like, there you go, come on. <laughs> But if you look at the beginning of Daniel, Daniel set his heart in a fasted posture and position to seek the Lord. And he he refused to defile himself as he was kind of brought into this Babylonian captivity. And he also made a commitment to prayer. Daniel prayed three times a day. And when you find even that like kind of the decree that went forth and he wasn't supposed to be praying, it, it literally says that from the days of his youth, it was his custom and he continued to do that. So it was something he did daily and constantly from the days of his youth until the time he was like 80. That's insane. So here we have Daniel, Daniel chapter 10. And so what we find, it says, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel whose name was called Bez, go ahead. Belshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long, and he, and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. Daniel was praying and fasting three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks was fulfilled. So here, three whole weeks, he's praying and fasting. Now on the 24th day of the first first month, as I was by the side of the great river that is Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked and behold a certain man clothed in linen whose waist was girded with gold of Euphas, his body was like Berlin and his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire and his, and his arms and his feet like burnished bronze in color. And the sound of his words was like the, multi, the, was like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them, so that they they fled and hid themselves. Therefore, I was alone when I saw the great vision, and no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words, 
And while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. So mind you, Daniel's been praying and fasting for three weeks. He actually uses the word mourning, meaning the lamenting of soul and humbling himself. Verse 10, suddenly a a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hand. And he said to me, oh, Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For I have now been sent to you while he was speaking this word to me. I stood trembling. Verse 12, this is key. Let's all look at this. Then he said to me, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come because of your words. This is an angel saying to Daniel, from the first day you sent your, set your heart. From the first day. Now, can I ask you a question? From the first day he set, set his heart, the angel was sent. What's going on for three weeks? Three weeks, he doesn't see the angel. At the end of three weeks, he sees the angel, and it says, verse 13, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. So we, we find this angel is released, and he actually uses the words, because of your words, I was released. Because of your prayers, I was loosed. That's that word there. This angel was released. And you know what he says is that then the the prince of Persia withstood him. So then there's like this contention taking place in the spirit realm. And then what does it say? And because there was contention, then Michael was sent to aid me. I mean, this is all taking place for three weeks in the spirit realm. Some of you right now are like, what? Angels? (laughs) What? I mean, do we believe that when we pray that it sets things in motion spiritually? And this is literally what the understanding when Jesus said, whatever you bind in heaven will be bound on earth. Whatever you loose in heaven will be loosed on earth. He's saying at the sound of your voice, angels are released. He's saying at the sound of your voice, demons are restrained. This is what was happening when Daniel prayed for three weeks. Angel of the Lord sent to release the purposes of God. Prince of Persia restrained from operating. That's intense. (laughs) Some of you are like, what? (laughs) I mean, do we believe that this is the reality of the authority that he's given to the church? I mean, that's a prayer meeting right there. So Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I've given you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever he's saying, I've given you authority. Use your words to release the purposes of God in the earth. This is the first understanding, the first revelation, the first context for upon this rock, I will build my church. This is how the church is to operate. So when you wonder, like, Hilltop, what is Hilltop? What's your mission statement? What's your vision statement? What are we here to do? We're here to be a praying community. We're here to see Matthew 16, that the gates of hell shall not prevail. What if we get that kind of vision in Cambridge, that the gates of hell shall not prevail in Cambridge, in Boston, in the Northeast? An understanding of the authority. Let me ask you a question. Most of you are sitting here going, authority? (laughs) I feel like the church is anything but authority. (laughs) We're always kind of, you know, what does the word of God say? You are the head, not the tail. You are the front, not the, you know, all of those things. And instead, it oftentimes looks like the church is like 20 steps behind. But let me ask you this question. In light of this passage of scripture, why is the church 20 steps behind? (laughs) It's because the authority that's been given is to be exercised from the place of prayer. If we are not operating in that place, in that position of authority, the gates of hell do prevail against us. Because there's a context and there's an order and there's an understanding and there's like a prescription that he gives to us on how the gates of hell will not prevail. And it's in this context of binding and loosing. It's in this context of you have authority 
that whatever you speak, whatever you dec- decree, whatever you release, that it will be accomplished. I want you guys just to flip a couple of chapters, actually, to um, Matthew chapter 18. It's almost like the identical passage of scripture. It's echoed once again. So we just read this promise. Whatever you bind in heaven will be bound on earth. Whatever you loose in heaven will be loosed on earth. It's repeated again. Jesus like, likes this theme, I think. Two chapters later, he's repeating it. And I want us to look at this again. It says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, and by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Verse 17. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Here's church. (laughs) This corporate reality, corporate understanding. Tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Verse 18. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. What do we find here? Jesus once again gives this promise and this understanding of binding and loosing. But I just want to ask you a question. He gives the promise in the context of relational unity. Hmm. Why is it most often that people do leave the church? It's an issue of relational unity. It's an issue of familiarity. Once you get to know me, my outgoing personality isn't so much fun. I'm now annoying to you. (laughs) No, just meaning like once you move beyond like the distance, you know, once you move beyond the familiarity and once you get to know people, there's room for offense and frustration and all of a sudden you don't smell as nice, you don't look as nice. You know, there's that rub going on. But this is exactly what we find here. The second time, so two chapters later, we find the same promise of authority through prayer, of binding and loosing the function of the church. But what do we find? He actually says, this is your authority, but he's giving it in context of relational unity. He's giving it in context. See, the way that our our, uh, modern culture works is not very much like what Jesus is prescribing here. He's saying that if your brother has sinned against you, go to him. Go make this right. What we say is that if someone sins against us, peace out. (laughs) Because we live in such a narcissistic society that somehow we think that we're always in the right and we're not going to go out of our way to contend for right relationships. I want to ask you a question. What if you started approaching relationships instead of trying to prove your, your point, improve your perspective, improve your angle and all of those things? What if you approach relationships as just simply trying to understand the other side? (laughs) And the married couple said amen. (laughs) I mean, honestly, for those of you that are single, this is marriage 101. (laughs) No, really, because you're going to spend the rest of your life as a very isolated individual. Okay, I get it. You might have friends. But you know what's going to happen is that circle of group is going to change because it no longer works with them. You can't stand them anymore, so you've got to find a new group of friends. But how about instead, this is the understanding that he gave is the place of relational unity. So let me just say on the forefront, church. Mm-hmm. What, the way he describes it is work out your issue with your brother. How about you don't have an option? Clearly, if this isn't your church, you do have an option. Go someplace where you love and then commit yourself there. But commit yourself to relationship. You don't have the option of you bother me, I don't like what you said to me, you annoy me, you offended me, so I'm out of here. How about we bind ourselves together as family? As God has called me to Boston, God has called me to the Northeast, He's confirmed that what we're going after is my life's calling and what I want to give myself to. So instead of being derailed, and let's just use the word, allowing the enemy, allowing the enemy to isolate us and distract us, 
from our call and our vision and from being unified together because that's ultimately what it is. Is the, when we're unified and in one accord, this is where we find the binding and the loosing, the keys of the kingdom, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. But how oftentimes church is just kind of a series of people being offended and moving on and isolating rather than the understanding of coming into agreement. And what does he actually say here? He said, and again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. That word agree is a powerful word. You know where we find the same word agree and the same understanding is the book of Acts. Book of Acts, they were together in one place in one accord. You know, it's really easy to read the book of Acts and like even sing, do it again like you did in the book of Acts. <laughs> I never said I could sing. <laughs> I actually read, where did I read that? Somebody posted whatever, that um, all of us have an issue of lying until it comes, until it comes to singing songs. And then we just, we just sing lies. <laughs> Ouch. But, you know, we want to see, let, we'll look at the book of Acts here. Why don't we turn to the book of Acts here? That's a good point. <laughs> I'll stay with that for a little bit. <clears throat> if you're not familiar, if you're here today and you're not familiar with the book of Acts, this is the birthing of the New Testament church. So like when Jesus was prophet I mean when Jesus was speaking about the church here in Matthew 16 that was the first time that the word church was mentioned in the New Testament or used but then what we find in the book of Acts is we actually find this right here is a picture of what the church is intended and called to be this right here is a living breathing so what we have in the book of Acts um, is chapter 1 4 through 8 is actually where we find, and, and being assembled together. Oh, there's our word again, assembled. They're assembled together. And being assembled to, together with them, he commanded them, do not depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy, Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witness, be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So what does Jesus do? He, he gives them the instruction. Actually, he, it doesn't even say instruction. It says he commands them, do not depart from Jerusalem, but wait. So then what do we find? Verse 12, we find them waiting. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the, Mount of Ol uh, from the Mount called Olive, which was near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And it lists them. Verse 14, then all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women, woman Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with the brothers. So what do we find? Jesus gave the command, and they obeyed. I'm going to be really honest with you. I don't think there was like a divine unction to obey. What we find in the book of Acts is they obeyed the command of Jesus. They gathered together here, and what is the language that they used? One accord in prayer. Do you know that that word, one accord, it literally is almost like a, a, a symphony or an orchestra that multiple, you can have so many different instruments, but when they're playing in the same chord, when they're playing in harmony, when they're playing in unison, although there's diversity, it makes a beautiful sound. And that is the essence of what the church is called to be. It doesn't mean that your diversity, it doesn't mean that your perspective and your gifting and all of your individuality has to get lost. It means being fully who you are and operating in one accord with other individuals. It's beautiful because that's actually the place where we see the face of Christ. Because do you realize that for every, that no one else's gifting or calling takes away from yours. It's not in competition with yours. There, there's a place where every individual reveals the nature of Christ in a unique way. And that's why every single one is needed and valuable 
It, and you never have to be concerned, like, if somebody else, like, starts doing, like, a ministry that, you know, looks like yours or whatever, smells like yours or whatever. The confidence of just do, being who you are before God. Be who you are before God because there's something he desires to release through your life. So we find this understanding of uh, being in one accord. And then we find chapter 2, verse 1. They're all up there in one accord. They're obeying what Jesus said. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all, oop, there's the word again. They were all in one accord, in one place. So they weren't all like in their houses. They didn't all go their separate ways. I'm going to contend for the promise that Jesus gave all by myself. Me, myself, and I. It's so much easier that way. I don't have to deal with other people. <laughs> so they're all in one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from he- heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared on them divided tongues of fire, and one sat on each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. You know, before we even go on to our next point, I just want to take note here. Oftentimes we're waiting for a move of God or we're waiting for God's spirit to somehow call us to the place of prayer. Or somehow we think that God's going to move and therefore prayer will be the result of it. What we find here is Jesus gave a command, they obeyed. They did it out of discipline, they did it out of obedience, and then there, there was the response of the spirit of God that came. Um, there's several things here. I mean, number one, they're in a house. It's 120 of them gathered together in a house. Like that just blows a, a lid off of all of our Western mindset of like mega church and that somehow you need a mega church to be effective in the earth. No, 120 people packed into a house. That's small, that's in, insignificant, but it's unified. I mean, let's be honest. The book of Acts, these people turned the world upside down. Literally, they caused fear and trepidation when they were coming into cities because the influence of the kingdom that they were walking in. And it wasn't because they were vast or mass in number. They were unified. They were in one accord. And I want to run through this like for two seconds. So you're just going to have to stick with me because this is not our final point. Um, In verse 14 through 46 is actually where we find Peter preaches his first sermon, right? So they're praying. There's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Peter preaches his first sermon. What happens? I would just want to make a side note here. Peter preaches his first sermon. He preaches scripture. Even here with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, fire, tongues upon his head. Like he doesn't move off in some crazy revelation. He doesn't like move off on like, I have a new revelation of something. He goes back to Joel and he simply trumpets scripture and then he trumpets Jesus. He literally preaches the life of Jesus. So he preaches scripture and he preaches Jesus. If you want to have a preaching ministry, stick with scripture and Jesus. You'll never go wrong. (laughs) This is book of Acts. So simple, scripture and Jesus. And do you know what he does at the end of his his message? You can read this here when you go home and be the church in your bed. Um, Wait. He literally, he preaches the life of Jesus and he closes it by laying the charge of his crucifixion upon them. Oh, not so seeker sensitive. He lays the charge of Jesus being crucified upon them. That's intense. But you know what it is? It's truth. Peter did not move from truth. He didn't think, I got to somehow like bathe you in the love of Jesus so you'll accept him as, no, he said, you need truth. Your greatest need is truth. Your greatest need is for a Messiah. So we're not going to skirt around it. We're not going to dance around it. We're not going to put flowers around it and make it feel great. We're just going to lay the truth before you and let the truth do its job. And what does it say? It says they were cut to the heart. And they were convicted. And guess what? 3,000 were added in a day. How about instead of taking our church growth techniques or our evangelism techniques, all the ways that we think we're going to see the kingdom of God, how about we go back to scripture and say, you know what? It worked for Peter and it'll work for you. Go back to the wisdom of the word and the wisdom of Jesus, the wisdom of truth. 
Stop trying to adapt it to, to what works for your people group, your culture, your society. You know what? I go train missionaries that go to Muslim countries, some of the most hostile places in the world. That's where I was this last week. And I can honestly tell you, regardless of where they're going, they go through intense training. They do linguistical training. They have to be prepped for trauma, all this stuff. I'm going to tell you one thing. It doesn't matter who they're going or what people group. Some of them have been there two, three, four years that are on the field. You know what it all comes back to? We don't, we don't like individualize their strategy for where they're going. This people group, their mindset is, no, no, no. It all comes back to the word and prayer. There you go. There's your wisdom. There's your authority. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, upon this rock, and I will give to you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind in heaven will be bound on earth. Whatever you loose in heaven will be loosed on earth. This is the wisdom of the word of God. So what do you found? 3,000 are added in a day. And then what do we see right after this? 2.42. I want you to turn to Acts 2.42. This is where in 37 it says they were cut to the heart. They come to repentance right after he's done preaching. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Verse, that was huge ministry success, right? Verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. What do we find? I mean, kind of the biggest evangelical effort that's ever been taken place. 3,000 are added into a day. You know what normally happens with success or with failure? People cease praying. You know what it is? They lose the place of dependency. They lose the place of urgency. It kind of goes into, how about, you guys know, you guys do you know, outreaches on campus. You guys have been a part of like, you know, short-term missions. Everybody like prays hard, presses hard when there's something you're going after. And then when you're done, everybody kind of takes a vacation, hiatus. Just wait till our next big. No, they see 3,000 souls added in a day. And what does it say? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in the gathering together, the breaking of bread and prayer. You know what? We don't have time today, but if you go through literally every chapter in the book of Acts, they were returning to the place of prayer. It it was the culture. It was the life's blood. It's how they ebbed and how they flowed was from the place of prayer. This is New Testament church. So then we find in Acts 3.12, Peter preaches his second sermon. We find in Acts 4, first persecution takes place. What happens? So we saw what they do in the midst of success. They continue praying. What happens in the midst of persecution? Acts 4. So we find this is the first persecution. We don't have time to go all through through it today. But then immediately following, 424. What do we find? Let me flip there. And being let go. So this is after Peter gets out of prison. How, how, How would we be feeling after we've been let out of prison? God's abandoned me. God, you said you said, and you didn't, and I'm suffering. That's not the gospel. You know, our perspective is so warped. We somehow blame God, blame, you know, that he wasn't, and somehow we're entitled to ease and safety and security, and it's supposed to all go well. No, 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 no. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God in one accord and said, Lord, you are God. And I don't have time right now, but all through verse 31, it's their prayer. And it's recorded. Because prayer is their response in success and in failure. Prayer is their response when they see the breakthrough and when they're in hardship. Prayer is how they lived their lives in community, in one accord. We actually find the word here, in one accord, they continued. Over and over and over again. So then in Acts, right after they pray, amazing. Don't you just love the wisdom of the Holy Spirit? Right after they pray, there's another outpouring. How many of you guys know there's another outpouring in Acts chapter 4? Let me ask you a question. What would happen if they didn't pray? <laughs> well, like, you know, they're all dis- disillusioned, disheveled discouraged, 
go our own ways in apathy, self-pity. Instead, they prayed. Another outpouring of the Holy Spirit comes. Then what do we find? If you guys jump ahead, I'm actually just going to point this out because I think sometimes we think like praying is for the mature believer. You find Saul's conversion. This is amazing. Saul's turn to Paul. Oh, my goodness. Acts 9. <clears throat> I love. The guy, the guy didn't even have his sight back yet. Saul's still blind. And basically, the Lord is sending Ananias to, to Saul. And we'll pick up in verse 10. So 9, 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. Mind you, Saul literally just got saved. He's still blind. Like we're not talking weeks later. We're talking like day later. He's still blind. So there is Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. Do you know it's a sign and a witness of a true convert of Jesus Christ? The heart response is prayer. Like you don't need like Christianity 101. And you got to learn to pray. This is what you actually find is that when individuals, what, what was it said? He that has been forgiven much loves much. It's a heart response that from the place of experiencing salvation and experiencing forgiveness, our heart responds in the place of prayer. We're going to close out just with this last point here is that in Isaiah, it was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 56, 7. And then we actually find Jesus declaring it in Matthew 21, 13 is where it's declared, my house shall be called a house of prayer. If you want to know what is the role of the church in the earth, we see it in book of Acts. It's a praying community and a praying community becomes a missional community. We, we, never, we never, ever, ever should be a missional community without first being a praying community. It cannot be sustained and there's no strength and there's no Holy Spirit on that. <laughs> But we find Book of Acts, it's a praying community that becomes a missional community. In Amos 9, so we don't have all the time in the world today, but when Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer, what exactly he was referring to is the reality of day and night prayer that the tabernacle of David instituted for the very first time. And how many of you guys know when the disciples came to Jesus, they said, teach us how to pray. That's what they said. And most of you know that from when, Jesus, when they said, teach us how to pray, Jesus gave them the, our Father, right? He gave them, which is great. You should take that, meditate on that. If you want to figure out how to pray, read the Our Father. There's a great model there. But he, he went into, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Jesus said, pray this way. Jesus said, pray this way. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's saying, pray for the will of God to be established in the earth and realm. And he's, you don't have to wonder, well, it's the will of God. He's saying, as it is in heaven. You know how it is in heaven? There's continual worship that's going on before the throne of God. If you're saying, I don't have a vision for my city. I don't have a vision for my campus. I don't have a vision for my business, whatever. Guess what? It's that we would come to a place of worship and adoration. What is revival? It's that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You don't have to wonder what the model, the strategy, any of those things are. It's continual worship and prayer until everything we do is centered around the person of the man Christ Jesus and the adoration of him. Not the adoration of a man, a preacher, an evangelist. Not the adoration of who you want to become and who you want to be. But Jesus receiving the glory that's due his name. So we find it's actually prophesied at Amos. You know what it says? It says, in the last days. In the last days. I don't know when that is. But I know it says, (laughs) in the last days, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David. I will raise up its ancient ruins so that the remnant of mankind might seek me. Do you know all throughout scripture, you might think that house of prayer or praying communities is like a new idea or a new trend. It is Bible. It is Bible. Because in Malachi, it actually says from the rising of the sun until it's going down, that his name will be made great, that they will sing out a song of the greatness of who he is to the ends of the earth. You know what in essence that is? It's the book of Acts being multiplied all of the earth. 
that get breaking out of our Western reality, our Western idea of what church is, and instead community of people bound together for the purpose of seeking him and seeing his fame to the ends of the earth. So that is what church is, according to a biblical context. <laughs> instead of our ideas and our strategy, it's day and night, worship and prayer. And Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. You guys should look at it. Old Testament night and day prayer was reinstituted six times throughout Israel's history. And then obviously in the New Testament, it was instituted and we find the disciples going there at hours of prayer. There's many, many things throughout scripture and Jesus himself going and cleansing the temple and overturning the money changers and declaring, my house shall be called a house of prayer. So I want to encourage you guys, immerse yourselves in the understanding and the reality of knowing that his desire is Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're going to close out with a word of prayer. Oh, does John want to share something? Yeah, so this is totally spontaneous. I feel like the Holy Spirit is uh, leading me to share this. Um, because I just want to encourage all of you that what Pastor Bethany was sharing today, all of it is for real. Everything that she said is for real. Um, as she was saying, uh, you know, in Cambridge, it seems like the church is always 20 steps behind or that the, the gates of hell in Cambridge are, uh, you know, uh, prevailing against the church. I literally almost shouted out, it wouldn't make sense, but I almost shouted out at the time, not last Sunday, because we were out on outreach, and it was literally Holy Spirit chaos. Uh, we, were, we were starting by praying in Panera, and someone was so touched that they donated uh, some, uh, $100 to someone on our team, and that $100 actually ended up being given to someone else because the Holy Spirit told that person to give that $100 to someone else, and that person broke down weeping. And then we went out, and we saw this uh, person on crutches coming toward us. And so we just prayed for healing, and he was partially healed, and he was overjoyed. And as we were, I, I mean, I believe for full healing. I don't even know if at this point he's fully healed. But as we were walking away, this man literally started sharing with other people about Jesus. It was literally like the book of Acts. So we're excited about this, and we're going. And we meet this other team, and they're like, do you know, someone just gave their life to Christ right now. Over there, Israel's talking to him. He just gave his life to Christ right now. And uh, just story after story, we, we ran into these Canadian, I don't know what they were doing there, but there was a bunch of Canadian Christians that came up to us, started praying with us. And uh, after all that was over, a couple of us went to Harvard campus, and we found this guy, and we started praying with him and, and sharing with him. And uh, he's a rapper, so he started, he, he said, I have a rap song that I want to share with you all. So he started rapping, and it was literally like prophetically, from a, a non-Christian point of view, everything that we had just been sharing with him. And so right now, we're, we're reaching out to him, trying to invite him. He's, he's never been in church before, uh, only experienced with Jeho Jehovah's Witnesses, which is obviously totally demonic. Uh, but uh, the, the craziest thing, though, the, the craziest thing about this entire thing for me, um, and, and AJ I, she could, could speak to this, because we, 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 AJ was not even part of our group, and she just ran into us. We were in Harvard Square, and we were the Canadian Christians, and we were just praying, and that was, I, I just felt the spiritual atmosphere shift and break over Harvard Square, where to the point was, you know, when we did outreach before, we'd kind of be shy or, uh, you know, we just feel like, oh, we're the minority and we're kind of cowering. But when the presence of God fell in Harvard Square, in that public space, we saw everybody around us, and they were the ones that were cowering. And I, and I think, uh, when, I, when I thought back to uh, last Sunday, I believe the reason why that happened, and this is why I wanted to share, the reason why that happened was because we were of one accord working with another church, Aletheia, and we said it's not about our church, it's not about Hilltop, it's not about Aletheia, of one accord in prayer, and that's actually the way that the Spirit broke out in Harvard Square. Um, and so I just wanted to share that with you all. Um, we just got to keep going after this. I know the same stuff happens at Serve the Square, where the spiritual atmosphere of that place shifts, and it has to be a continual thing where right now we're praying day and night, but also we need to start reaching out day and night to shift the entire atmosphere of Harvard Square. So just wanted to encourage you with all of that. I'm going to give you another sermon. Everybody ready? No, I'm just joking. God's up to some stuff, yeah? I really, really think that it's an issue of us getting 
you know, kind of in line and in step with truth, that once we actually do what the Bible lays out for us to do, man, it's, it's kind of kingdom here, revival now type realities. You know, just kind of listening to the message today uh, and thinking about Psalms 133, right, kind of a layup for, uh, you know, the church's unity. Uh, I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, could quote that text, but Psalms 133 just talks about the unity of the brethren and how precious it is to the Lord. But something that's striking within this short little chapter is that uh, it says that the Lord commands his blessings upon his people in the context of their unity, of their togetherness. And, and, and you find that that's really like the first uh, picture that we get um, before Acts chapter 2, where the Spirit of God was, you know, just did that within the context of, of the Acts of the Apostles all throughout the books of Acts. That 90% of what took place through the Apostles' lives was really just the result of their togetherness, was really the result of their prayer and their devotion to one another and the things of God. I wonder, I wonder for us here in the Western world, you know, in, in Boston and Cambridge, that if we really took the Bible literally, not just in some kind of way that we like, you know, just observe the writings, but we actually apply it to our lives and we fight for unity with one another. We fight to not just neglect the prayer room, but we actually join together, lock arms. Not just for, like Bethany was saying, not just for an event or a nice little evangelistic strike that we might do. All that's good and necessary. But I wonder if the church started acting on the offensive rather than continually on the defensive. Just what we would see. You know, it's funny. I shared this last Sunday. He was uh, eating dinner with Sean Foyet after he spoke here Sunday at our service. And um, if you've heard the story, I'm sorry, but there's a lot of new faces here. I just want to encourage us because something is changing, guys. Something is, 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 is shifting in this city. I've had the privilege of being here with a couple of you guys from the very beginning of beginnings with J-Hop. And I have, through the, the years, have seen the many transformations, if you would, the involving of uh, the city of Cambridge, specifically within the church, and Sean Foyt had come. He's another guy who frequently, you know, would come into the city, minister, and, and, and uh, you know, do worship events and preaching events. And he said him and his wife walked into that 110 conference. And his wife literally said, Sean, are we in New England right now? Is this really happening in New England? And I was trying to, I'm not trying to kind of puff up 110 uh, by no means. But what I'm trying to say is, you know, it's even starting to be uh, a notable change within people who have given their lives and have come in periodically. Lou Engel, another one who we've always had throughout the years. I don't think there's been a year gone by where he hasn't come and ministered to our community. He also is attesting to this change. Guys, it, it really, it, it just really has to do, I think, not trying to put J-Hop or Hilltop as like the, you know, the pinnacle or the, the thing that's brought the change, but it's really just a ragtag group of people in our weakness who are willing to obey the scripture. Who are just saying, hey, man, we feel weak, we feel incompetent, but you know what? We're going to be faithful. We're going to come to this place, lift our voices in prayer, but we're not just going to lift our voices in prayer. We're going to fight for unity within our community. You know, a lot of these things, it's not mysterious at all. You know, I know a lot of us in Hilltop and in this context, we long for citywide transformation and revival. But I wonder how much of that really lies within the context of our daily choices, interfacing with one another, doing the gospel with one another, being obedient to Jesus and the call of God and the call through Scripture. I just wonder how much of it really is our responsible rather than just continually praying for revival. You know, I think if if, 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 if a group of us could just get it, and not just get it mentally where we see it, but get it in our hearts and sincerely move. I wonder what God would do in our midst. I believe it would be just like what John's witnessing. I believe that it would be an ease and we would see uh, the power of God manifest in our midst. And I'm, I just know that's where we're going as a church. It's only going to get better. I Actually, when Sean said that, I said, yep, it's, it's changing. 
And it's going to continue to change because we're just going to constantly lift our voices in prayer. We're going to constantly cry out for revival. And we're going to constantly fight for one another. You know, we're going to constantly fight not to be that church that, that did good, then all of a sudden, you know, the leaven of offense, you know, kind of started scattering through our midst. And we started, you know, just getting offended and we forgot to forgive. You know, I don't want to be that church. I didn't start Hilltop Church to end bad. I started Hilltop Church to end good. And that's what I tend to do. And that's only going to take place as we obey this book. Not just obey it, but move in it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. God, we thank you, Lord, that in many ways, Lord, you're painting a new picture of what church means, of what church looks like. You're redefining it, God, in our minds and in our hearts. And so, Lord, we just invite your spirit through, uh, to, throughout this week, begin to just sow your word into our hearts, Lord, and redefine what church means, redefine what unity means in the context of living and doing community together. Father, we just ask, Lord, that we would never get jaded because of what the church lacks, but we would look to be, Lord, what the church needs, Lord, rather than lifting our voices in offense and accusation. God, we pray, Lord, that you would increase your hand in the midst of our community, Lord, the work of your spirit, Lord, through our house of prayer, through this little church, God, I just ask, Lord, for the increase upon our evangelism strikes, God, uh, our kids' church, God, our, our small groups. Father, we just want the Holy Spirit, and we invite you, we invite you to increase in our midst as we obediently love you, sacrificially give our lives to you. Pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Everybody good?